All right. When I was, I think in seventh grade, went down to the wilds to camp for the summer. And uh, we went on a hike. We have a waterfall out there in North Carolina. And um, pretty decent hike up and down around the hills and so forth. And so I was kind of worn out when I came back. And I remember when I was coming back, I was thinking, it is a long walk back to the cabin. I happened to walk past this vending machine. And in the vending machine was like water and Mountain Dew and all those sorts of things. And I don't remember what I got. I think it was Mountain Dew, but I'm not 100% sure. All I know is it was cold. And it was really, really welcome after the long hike through the woods, all hot and sweaty and worn out. And when we think of that kind of a scenario, you've been working outside, you've been doing something that's dry and dusty, more than just about anything else, sometimes even more than food, you want something that's, that's cool and refreshing, a glass of water. That's the picture, the background of the psalm that we're looking at tonight, Psalm 63. He says... Uh, in, there in Psalm 63, with regard to the circumstances that he's going through. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, there were several times that David was out in the wilderness. The passages that I put on the uh, prayer sheet are the ones where he was out in the wilderness when Saul was chasing him. Uh, I was reading a few other things uh, after I printed the prayer sheet before we came back tonight. And if you look at verse 11, it says, But the king will rejoice in God. And at least one of the commentators was making the argument that if the king will rejoice in God, and the king that was in mind was David, then it probably would have been later on in his life. Because when... Saul was chasing him. He wasn't actually king yet, right? He was promised to be king, but he wasn't technically king until a good while later. And so there is an interesting account in 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 13, 15, somewhere in there, when he is being driven out of the city because of Absalom's uprising, and he's also going out into the wilderness. And uh, in that context, it's interesting there's this question of should we take the Ark of the Covenant out with us as we flee the city? And David says, no up to God, he can bring me back here. And so I think there's probably a case to be made for that being the time that is in view uh, when David is in the wilderness. Um, there are some less persuasive but possible arguments that the tone, the attitude of trust and so forth would have been consistent with David later on in life as opposed to necessarily when he was first fleeing from Saul, although David followed God, as best we know, for the most part throughout his entire life. But regardless of which time it was that he was in the wilderness, he says, to start out, God, you are my God. That is the foundation of what it is that he's saying. That is the sort of the backdrop for all the rest of the statements that he makes. God, you are my God. Notice where it says, I shall seek you earnestly there in verse 1. And in contrast, verse 9, there are those who seek my life to destroy it. 
So there's, there's two ideas of seeking in this psalm. The first one is David toward God, and the other one is David's enemies toward his life to cast him down and to destroy him. And as we look at this, both of them seem to be a, a earnest and an eager sort of seeking. It doesn't necessarily highlight that as much in verse 9, but we know certainly the example of Saul and Absalom for that matter as well. They are searching out David to kill him, to destroy him, to break his power. In the midst of those circumstances, though, David is seeking God earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. Do you thirst for God? Sometimes we treat our coming before God kind of how our kids treat having to go get the mail from the mailbox. It's something dad and mom asked me to do. It's probably nothing to do with me, but it's got to be done because if we don't do it, the mailbox gets full and what's going to happen then? It's just a task, right? The difference between the task that we do because we have to do it and something that we thirst after is pretty, pretty significant, right? He's out in a dry and weary land where there is no water, and so he's sort of bringing together these two pictures, physical thirst and spiritual thirst, need for God, need for water and food and all those other sorts of provisions. Paul brings those two ideas together when he's writing the Corinthians, right? The Israelites are in the desert. They needed actual water. But despite needing actual water, how does Paul describe it? They drank from that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Paul unites both the physical provision and the spiritual provision as having the same source, which is God through Christ. Or, perhaps even uh, an easier point of connection for us, Jesus' words to the woman at the well. We think about Jesus' conversation with her, we're familiar with it. Jesus says this to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the water from the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. For David, for the woman at the well, for you and I, the only one who can satisfy our spiritual thirst is God. And I think that we have to have that as the starting place for what he's going to say later because he's going to talk about worship, he's going to talk about meditation, he's going to talk about deliverance. But aside from a relationship with God, none of those things mean anything, right? Our worship will be empty, our meditation will be an, a pointless ritual and any deliverance that we have is something that we can explain away in our own minds as somehow the result of our own works, right? But if we have a relationship with God, then our worship becomes genuine, 
our meditation becomes meaningful, and the deliverance that God provides is an occasion to praise and rejoice in Him. He looks back in the midst of this seeking and need to the times when He was with God. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. For the Israelites, this was to gather at this time in the tabernacle with many barriers to direct access to God. For us today, this is to gather as God's people in the church, and we have through Christ direct access to God, a way that Christ has opened through His own blood and the opportunity to come boldly before Him. And hopefully, like David, we glimpse, we see God's power and God's glory in the gathering with God's people in God's presence. And then verse 3, there's sort of this progression. I seek, I see you in the sanctuary. And then verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. And then the next two phrases have to do with this idea of praise. Because your loving kindness is better than life. Think about the circumstance in which he's saying this. I don't know if I'm going to die or not. But so long as you are my God, it doesn't matter. That's a difficult statement both to say and to believe and to mean wholeheartedly, right? Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Praise you when? Praise you after God has delivered him? No, praise him, I think, even in the midst of this difficulty that he finds himself in. And then he expands on it in verses 4 and 5. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. He is overflowing with praise to God, thirsting after God, remembering having gathered before God, affirming in faith that God is worth more than life or anything else, spilling over into praise to God, even though it doesn't seem that God has yet delivered him, at least he doesn't talk about it, until verses 9 through 11. So, when, in David's case, there were those who sought after his life to destroy him, when in our case... We are in that place where we have that same sense of need toward God. Do we remember having gathered with God and His people? Do we remember truth about God like that knowing Him is worth more than life? And does that cause us to spill forth into praise? Then he goes a little bit further to this idea of meditation and reflecting on God in verses 6 through 8. When I remember you on my bed... I meditate on you in the night watches. We talked about meditation when we were going through Habits of Grace, the idea that we need to meditate on and think about God and who He is and what His Word has said and all these sorts of things. When do you do it? A lot of times we could do it. Practically speaking for us, probably not so much when we're in the middle of work during the course of the day because we're running around doing all these sorts of things. Maybe not when we're doing our schoolwork because we've got other things on our minds. Maybe not when you're preparing dinner or driving the car to put gas in the car or getting up early because you have to shovel snow or all those sorts of things. There are opportunities throughout the day to meditate on God. But one of them is 
before we fall asleep, when we wake up in the middle of the night, to reflect on God, to meditate on Him. If you were David, fleeing, wondering, those would have been things, circumstances that would have kept him up at night sometimes, right? And in those circumstances, what are we prone to do? Worry, scheme, come up with our own ideas about things. David said, I thought about God, I reflected, I meditated on God. What did he think about? You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. God, you've helped me in the past, and under your protection, even in the midst of this circumstance, I can sing for joy. And then he says, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Um, I'm not sure if this is exactly the imagery that David had when he was thinking about this, but the picture that popped into my head when he says this was, if you've ever seen um, animals, but people as well, with their young, with their children, there's a sense of safety with the father, with the mother. There's a sense of the young clinging to, sticking close to, all of those sorts of things. If you're talking certain kinds of fish, the mother goes and scoops up the baby fish in her mouth. If you're talking animals, the animals will sort of crowd around the young baby so that they're safe in the middle of the herd. If you're talking birds sheltered under the wings, in the, you could go on and on with all of those sorts of illustrations. Human children do this as well, right? They see something that scares them. Most of them, if they have any sense, run right back to dad and mom, right? Because that's where they know they're safe. David's saying, my soul clings to you, God. I remember you. I meditate on you. I think back on what you've done. I sing for joy. My soul clings to you and you uphold me. He runs to God. He's in God's presence. He is holding on to God and God is holding on to him. Which in and of itself is a good picture of perseverance, right? In the Christian life. We would not be continuing in our Christian life if God wasn't doing something. But as we hang on to God, He doesn't drop us, right? And then He goes to what is the fate of those who have plotted against Him? Those who seek my life to destroy it? Notice three things. We'll go down into the depths of the earth, we'll be delivered over to the power of the sword, and we'll be a prey for foxes. Uh, quite possibly that word foxes could also be translated as jackals, scavengers. That's probably more the idea that he has in mind there. Not so much like the fox running through the forest, but the scavengers cleaning up the, uh, what's left after a battle when people are killed and destroyed. So what will happen to them? They'll go down into the depths of the earth. Could he have been thinking of Korah and what happened with that? Who knows? But God certainly did that once, could have done it again. With regard to the power of the sword, there is ample evidence that when God's people forsook him, or when the wicked rose up against God's people, even in the time of the judges, what did God do? Delivered them over to their enemies to be defeated in battle. With the sort of related idea that those who had thus rejected God were cast down, killed, food for scavengers. 
It, not, it had not yet happened, but we look back and we think about the story of Jezebel, right? All her schemes come to nothing, gets thrown out of the window, they go to pick her up, and all the dogs have left is a few bones from her hands and feet. God can and will cast down and destroy the wicked. In contrast, the king will do what? Rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. In contrast to the destruction that comes upon the wicked, the king who, verse 1, has a relationship with God, will rejoice in God, even as he praises in verses 3 through 5, sings for joy in verse 7. Everyone who swears by him will glory. In the NASB, the hymn is capitalized. There's probably some who would take it to be the king, that those who swear by the king will glory, although more often it would be that they would swear by God. Uh, the reason I say that there's even the possibility of it being the king would have to do with this idea of what we've been looking at, that those who uh, ally themselves with God's anointed one find favor with God, and those who rejected him found God's opposition. But regardless of the way that you take that phrase, the point is either God or the one that he's appointed to be the leader, swearing by him, trusting in and following after him, brought glory and honor. Why? Because in these things, in God's deliverance, the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. Perhaps David had in mind Saul. Perhaps he had in mind Absalom. Perhaps if it happened in the time of Absalom, he had in mind both. God cannot only defeat the wicked in battle, but also bring their lies and their schemes to nothing. And so as we look at this psalm, what's the point of it? Seek God when there are those who seek after you to destroy you. What does that look like? It looks like we want God. And when I say we want God... Not like, I want a bag of chips after I've gone to a buffet and I'm not really hungry. But I want God, like that feeling that you get right after church, if the sermon's gone too long and you think, I don't know if there's any food ready to go in the house and you're starving, that but multiplied a hundred times. Want God, search God, seek after God, because in our relationship with Him, is the possibility for us to rejoice in the midst of the trials that God brings into our lives, our ability to meditate on Him and, and marvel at who He is, and our ability to find deliverance from those who seek after to harm us in whatever way that might be. So, this psalm, I think, lays out for us A, an eagerness that's sometimes lacking in our Christian lives. It can be lacking for many reasons, right? You've been a Christian for a long time and it feels like this is just the routine that I go through. It can be, there's sin in your life that you need to deal with and why would you want God earnestly when this sin is drawing after you and you're like, yeah, this is better. Or, and this is the possibility that we should always consider, we may not want God if we don't really know Him. I'm not saying 
that to cause any of us in this room to question our salvation unnecessarily. But if we never want God, that ought to cause us to pause and say, why not? For that matter, if we never have opposition from those who hate God, that also ought to ask, uh, cause us to ask that same question. Seek after God. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many um, so many compelling wastes of time in the world in which we live that interfere with a keen hunger for seeking after you. Think of the passage in Hebrews where it talks about laying aside the weights that easily trip us up. There is sin that can throw us off course. There is not having begun to trust in you. Perhaps we are seeking after you as fervently as this passage talks about. And if we are, Lord, I pray that you might give us grace to continue to do so. But I I think all of us have a sense that at some point or another in our Christian lives, we are not hungering and thirsting after you like Jesus says, that there are those who should hunger and thirst after righteousness that will be blessed by you. So Lord, help us to have that hunger to seek you out. Help us to meditate on all of the amazing things that are true about who you are. Help us to rejoice about your past work in our lives and to look forward to your future deliverance, whether that's from a particular circumstance in the near future or the ultimate and great deliverance that you've promised and will carry out for all your people when you return to this earth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek after you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.